podcast. For this week's book club, episode 11, on the 11th, I picked Julius Caesar, since we've reached the month that is named after him. Not only that, it's one of the very few plays that mention the idea of a birthday, and as Cassius puts it, this is my birthday, as this very day was I born. So it's all come together for today. Julius Caesar is one of those plays that a great many people study in secondary school. It's based on a historical story, it's political, and it doesn't have any sex in it at all, so it's a rather safe bet. Certainly, it's got fewer adult situations than A Midsummer Night's Dream, and it's far less problematic than, say, The Merchant of Venice. It's a beautifully constructed play, it has a great many political speeches and turns of phrase, but somehow it seems to languish on the outskirts. Maybe because it's so monumental, so arch almost, that it feels like one of the cool marble buildings in which most of it takes place. On a metric anything like the Bechdel test, it's a complete disaster. There are remarkably few female voices to be heard in this play, even for Shakespeare. Even when we do get to meet its two women, most often in the privacy of their own homes, they feel almost like an inconvenience. Brutus's wife Portia nags for attention and has to self-harm in order to prove her mettle, and Caesar's wife Calpurnia is ignored completely. This really is a man's world. And when it starts to unravel, it will be at the hands of a distant woman. But that's another play and we'll talk about her another time. Shakespeare took much of the plot, the situations and the human gossipy elements of the play from the historian Plutarch. What he does with all of this is sculpt a dramatic narrative, squishing some events together and generally trying to condense the sprawling history of ancient Rome into the two hours traffic of his stage. It starts as tensions mount in Rome at the festival of Lupercal. We start to see that it isn't absolutely everybody that worships this Julius Caesar. Cassius takes Brutus aside and tries to sound him out, hoping to find an ally for his questionable opinions. They discuss how problematic it is that Caesar has risen so high in a so-called republic. The journey that these two go on is the journey of the play. They hatch a plot to rid Rome of this would-be dictator. For Brutus, it will be a completely political act. He wants to save the Roman Republic from any one man having too much power. As he tries to put it, it's not because he loves Caesar less, but because he loves Rome more. Given that there's always been a rumour swirling, since as far back at least as the gossipy historian Suetonius, that Brutus was Caesar's biological son, there's something almost Oedipal about Brutus killing his paternal Caesar for the sake of Mother Rome. But by the end of the play, he will be called the noblest Roman of them all, because what he's doing is for ideological reasons rather than personal power. Caesar doesn't see it coming. His dying words are among the most famous in the play. As Brutus stabs him, and he's the last to do so, Caesar cries, Et tu, Brute, then fall Caesar. And these words are a reminder to every Latin student ever of how the vocative case works. Even more surprising is that Caesar has Cassius's number from the start. He tells Antony just how much he distrusts Cassius's lean and hungry look, and when Antony dismisses any threat, he continues... Such men as he be never at heart's ease, whilst they behold a greater than themselves, and therefore are they very dangerous. 
It's a pity Caesar didn't pay more attention to his own advice. But then we wouldn't have history and we wouldn't have this play. Julius Caesar himself doesn't have a great many lines. He dies smack at the middle of the play and then reappears as a ghost, haunting the final two acts. The murder of Julius Caesar was considered one of humanity's greatest crimes in the medieval world. Dante had consigned Brutus to one of the lowest depths of hell in the Inferno. So, an audience coming to see a play about this man and his assassination might have expected it, the tragedy of Julius Caesar, to have been all about Caesar and his fall and most cruel murder. Instead, Shakespeare gives us a play about someone else, for this is very much Brutus's play. It could be called the tragedy of Brutus just as easily. But, in the same way that both the Henry IV plays are named after the character with the highest status, rather than after Falstaff and Hal, whose plays they really are, so this Roman tragedy must be named after the most famous Roman of them all. While Caesar himself doesn't appear that often, his name appears throughout the play. He's mentioned more than anyone else at any point in the piece, by some margin, and he's all anyone seems to talk about. It's pretty hard to find a way of putting someone so famous on stage, and so Shakespeare neatly sidesteps it by having Caesar become almost a supporting character. All of Rome is obsessed with him, but he himself manages to exist in the eye of the storm. The whole play is about how everyone else sees Caesar, how they construct him, how they fashion him almost, and to some extent how he does this for himself. He's a very astute politician, he's an excellent judge of character, as we've seen, but Shakespeare can't resist making him a little bit human, too. He juxtaposes one of his most bombastic lines when he says, I rather tell them what is to be feared than what I fear, for always I am Caesar. With a very telling human weakness. Come on my right hand, for this ear is deaf, and tell me truly what thou thinkst of him. This deafness was Shakespeare's own invention. Caesar has other weaknesses too. He has the falling sickness, which is used to dramatic effect at various points, again showing a human weakness in an otherwise almost godlike figure. It's quite a sympathetic idea, showing that this colossus, bestriding the world, was also only as strong as his own constitution, and very far from ideal. The metaphor of his falling sickness, of course, translates into the literal fall when he is stabbed to death at the base of his erstwhile enemy's statue. It's not an accident, either, that his very last words are then fall Caesar. So the falling is throughout. Caesar speaks in this third person. Caesar is turned to here, Caesar shall not, Caesar shall go forth, and so on. It's even more pompous, I think, than the royal plural that Shakespearean monarchs so love using. Happily, he doesn't quite get as far as saying things like, we are Caesar, even after being offered the crown three times. So he denies three times and then becomes a sacrifice. This feels rather like a reference to someone else, of course, a little heavy-handed from Shakespeare, perhaps. But Caesar isn't the only one who uses the third person. Brutus develops a taste for it in the final acts of the play, too. This little switch has often made me think of Cassius and how he manipulates or tries to manipulate Brutus at the very beginning. Brutus and Caesar. What should be in that Caesar? Why should that name be sounded more than yours? And so he continues weighing up the two names. 
By the end of it, all three will be dead, Brutus, Cassius and Caesar. But of course, only one of them will become immortal. And only one of them has a name that we still talk about. It's a brilliant stunt, writing this famous historical event from the perspective of two of its chief agents. For Shakespeare to write the story of Julius Caesar from the perspective of his murderer and to make Brutus into such a sympathetic character is really an extraordinary feat. Not since Euripides had any playwright, I don't think, had the invention to take such a famous story and twist it, showing its themes and agents in such an inventive, different light. Shakespeare certainly knew his history. He cleverly presents Brutus and Cassius as the two central figures, maybe because he knew he had a different story he wanted to tell with Antony. Of course, Antony is a terrific part. He gets one of the best speeches Shakespeare ever wrote, and in that he even has the benefit of following a much inferior speech from Brutus at the hasty, impromptu funeral. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears, is as brilliant a piece of rhetoric as you'll ever encounter. It's quite hands-off, and on paper it seems to agree with the necessity of the murder, but of course it's designed to whip the crowd into a frenzy against the conspirators. Shakespeare presents the crowd, the mob really, as a key factor in Roman politics, and shows just how volatile their loyalties can be. Brutus thinks he has won them to his side over the course of his speech, which is fine, but I think it's deliberately pedestrian. It can't possibly be as good as Antony's, and therefore it's always going to fall a little short. And then, in one of his many egregious miscalculations, Brutus gives the platform to Antony, and as a result of his speech, all is lost. Brutus and Cassius, and the group of conspirators who help them to assassinate Caesar, are motivated by their idealism and their hope for a free Rome and so on. What they don't anticipate, really, is what is going to happen next. There doesn't seem to be a plan, and in that absence, Rome descends into chaos. And the last two acts of the play take place in the run-up to the battle at Philippi, between the conspirators and Antony's faction. Another key figure begins to emerge, but only slightly. This is Octavian, the young man who is named as Caesar's heir. He will grow up to become Augustus, the first actual Roman emperor, but Shakespeare keeps a lid on him. He doesn't get his own play like Antony does. Perhaps Shakespeare couldn't find a hook on which to hang a play, or indeed perhaps his life was too big to condense into a juicy enough afternoon of entertainment. Octavian gets very few words in the play, but he does get to end it. This is not an accident. He's already stood up to Antony in a little moment as they strategize. He says, I do not cross you, but I will do so. He corrects Antony's reading of a situation and imposes his own will, despite his youth. We've already seen the cruel and chilling way in which they've consolidated power, see with a spot I damn him, and prepared to lead Rome as two parts of a new triumvirate. And so now, of course, it's only appropriate for Octavian to have the last word, since he will be the one to emerge from all of these dramas and become one of the most powerful Romans of all time. Amid all of the terrific scenes of this play, and there are too many to describe in a short podcast really, there's one that can get overlooked. If it's ever cut from a production that you see, ask for your money back. 
Again, in a play that balances the power of names, this little scene stems from a misunderstanding about just that. As the mob is devolving into chaos after Caesar's assassination, a group of people bump into a man and start asking a variety of questions. These questions come very thick and very fast, in the manner of a bunch of bullies jonesing for a fight. It's brilliantly, sickeningly observed. They realise that this man is called Cinna, which name he shares with one of the conspirators who killed Julius Caesar, so they insist that they will tear him to pieces because he's a conspirator. He insists that he is Cinna the poet, not Cinna the conspirator, but they shout that they'll tear him for his bad verses. Despite his cries, they set upon him. It is not matter, his name's Cinna. Pluck but his name out of his heart and turn him going. Of course, they kill him. In the fog of chaos that descends in the aftermath of Caesar's death, it's not an accident that Shakespeare makes the point that artists and poets are in danger. Even an assumed connection or affinity can be enough to destroy or end a life. This ugly aspect of how humans think and operate, especially en masse in the world, is still frighteningly prevalent. There are so many examples that it hardly seems necessary to point them out. I love Shakespeare for making the point. We are vulnerable in ways we might never imagine, and it's the poets that suffer when mob rule descends. I've often wondered about how this play works on stage. I've been lucky enough to see quite a few productions, and only one of them actually featured togas and sandals. The iconography of Rome is strong in our imaginations, despite how little evidence we have beyond a few statues. I've seen it done in modern dress, in distinctly Irish political circumstances, I've even seen an opera of it in Greek, and of course, there was a controversial production in New York recently that made direct reference to contemporary American politics and a sort of romanticised version of an assassination. The play gives a voice to those who believe in justice, inequality, and those who would fight for the freedom of their country. It also shows that if you're going to get rid of a man you think is a horrible tyrant who doesn't deserve the vast power he has accrued, you better have a plan for running the country once he's been eliminated, and a plan to placate the public in the power vacuum afterwards. Some of these things clearly resonated in Shakespeare's England, and they certainly do today. James Shapiro's book 1599, A Year in the Life of Shakespeare, discusses how Julius Caesar was written at around about the same time as Hamlet. There are numerous references to Rome and even to this play within Hamlet. Horatio speaks of the time when the mighty Julius fell. Polonius prattles on about how he played Caesar and was stabbed, which might, might be a hint that the actor playing Caesar also played Polonius. But it's a riddle we can't really solve. Of course, Horatio has an interesting line at the end of Hamlet, claiming, I am more an antique Roman than a Dane. He tries to kill himself, but there's no poison left for him in the cup. Julius Caesar ends with not one, but two suicides. If these plays came in swift succession, then audiences would certainly have enjoyed this nod. If the company's leading man played Hamlet and Brutus, and you can almost picture Richard Burbage insisting on both terrific parts, then maybe the same actor who played Horatio also played Cassius. That's a brilliant contrast, since the parts are so remarkably different. But who knows? Maybe somewhere there's a ledger waiting to be found 
that'll have all the details of who played what and might answer such little questions. In keeping with Shapiro's book, next week we'll cover another of the plays Shakespeare wrote in 1599. We're back to comedy, utterly different from all this Roman drama. The play is As You Like It. I hope you'll enjoy it, and I'll speak to you next week.